Well, I can still see the anguished faces of people I've ministered to in two plus uh, decades of ministry who were convinced they had committed the sin that Jesus talks about in today's text, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, what is also known as the unforgivable sin. I actually read about a guy named John Child. He was a Puritan of 300 years ago who was under such duress and mental torment over the prospect that he had committed the unpardonable sin that he actually took his own life. Now, I hope there's nobody here in that kind of strait, but nonetheless, I'm sure there are people here who have battled with the idea, have I committed the unforgivable sin? And to you, I would give you the really encouraging and reassuring words of Matthew Henry who said, if you fear you've committed the unforgivable sin, that's evidence that you have not. Why? Because you would be so far gone, you wouldn't even care if you committed that sin. But here you are with a tender conscience. Well, what is the unforgivable sin? I'm sure you've heard lots of things. Here's four different views. The first view is the unforgivable sin is saying no to Jesus one too many times. Jesus is the one, of course, that the Spirit points to, right? And so somebody in that view who's committed the unforgivable sin, they said no to Jesus one too many times, and God said, okay, that's it. Now, if that were the unforgivable sin, most of us would not be Christians because most of us said no to Jesus way too many times, right? Far after hearing the gospel one time. Now, if somebody dies, of course, never coming to Jesus, yes, they die unforgiven, but that's not the unforgivable sin, rejecting Jesus. We've all done it. The second viewpoint is that it would be denying Jesus, denying him. But I, I call uh, to the stand uh, a certain man who many years ago before a young woman who said, hey, you were with Jesus? I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, no, you were. I don't know that man. Who am I talking about? Peter, and yet we know Peter is a child of God. So that view's wrong. Another view is it's, it's giving into a sin that you've given into way too many times that God has convicted you about many times. Never forget, we'll call him Tim, my first place of ministry in South Bend, Indiana. It's a Saturday. I just finished cutting my lawn. He walks up uh, into my uh, uh, driveway, into my garage, with, with, with something in a plastic bag. It's his computer. He said, I once again gave in to porn. Here, take my computer. And he went through a season of severe anguish over the prospect that he had committed the unforgiven sin by once again going back to porn. That's not actually it, though. The fourth view, which is the one that I preached from this text in Matthew probably about 15 years ago when I walked through this book, is that it is um, crediting Satan with the works of God, attributing to Satan the works of God. And, and honestly, as we'll see, that's, out of the four views uh, that I've given you so far, that's the one that's probably most faithful to the text, attributing to God, to Satan, the works of God. In fact, when I had my rough, rough draft ready about 10 days ago, that's the direction I was going. That is until early last week, I'm sweating my head off on an elliptical powerhouse gym 
in Highland Park, and I just threw in my phone the text, put it for a sermon. I like to listen to sermons, people I never listened to, some guy on the other side of the pond. And the way he walked through that text made me think, hmm, I think I can even give more clarity. I don't think that fourth view, though it's the best one of the first four, is not quite it. So what is then the unpardonable sin? Well, to that, we'll get to as I unpack this text in the message called The Showdown Between Satan's Sidekicks and the Stronger Man. The showdown between Satan's sidekicks and the stronger man. Who do you think the, strong, the, the Satan's sidekicks are, by the way, in the text? haven't read it yet, but it, it, the Pharisees are. In fact, if you drop, drop your eyes to chapter 12, verse 14, we saw two weeks ago the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, Jesus, how to destroy him. They've already made their verdict on Jesus. They are Satan's sidekicks. The stronger man, as we will see in the illustration Jesus gives, is Jesus himself. So with that, let's simply walk the text. The text begins with something that's going to spark this whole narrative. Verse 22, there is a miracle. Let me read verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man, and by the way, it can be translated demon-possessed. There's really no difference in the Greek. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Who do you think brought the demon-oppressed man to Jesus? The text doesn't tell us. Some people surmise the Pharisees actually brought the demon-possessed man to Jesus, knowing what he was going to do and wanting to have a, a setup for the verdict they've already established on him. They don't want him. We don't exactly know. What we do know about this demon-possessed man is that he cannot speak. He's mute. He cannot see. He's blind, which tells us not all the time, but sometimes Satan and demonic forces are behind sickness and physical affliction. I think we're, we're scared to say that because char some charismatics run amok with that, but, but it is true. I mean, this man's demon-possessed, and he's mute, and he can't see. And you remember in Job, the storms against Job? Who, who, who created those storms? The enemy, now under the auspices of the Lord God Almighty, but, but it happened there. Now, what I love about this text is its brevity. This miracle, I should say. It's so concise. How many words are used to describe the miracle Jesus does on this man? I don't know, two or three. He was brought to him, and boom, what happened? What does it say that Jesus did with him? Simply, he healed him. No drama, it's just done. No fanfare, it's just fact. He healed him. This man who could not speak can now speak. This man who cannot see can now see. And, and just by the way, this is an incredible picture of what we call sovereign grace. We just pray to prayer, oh God of the eternal choice. God choosing to save people for his name. It's a picture, it's pictured right here. This man had, he couldn't see Jesus, right? He was blind. This man was mute. He couldn't even call upon Jesus. What does Jesus do? Restores the man just like that. And listening to that guy with the British accent on the elliptical at Powerhouse earlier uh, last week, he just, a little sanctified imagination, he imagined this man starting to sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was mute, but now I sing. What do you think this 
formerly blind mute man did once he was gifted with sight and sound. What do you think he did? He worshiped the living God, right? He used his words, no doubt, to worship the living God because he experienced a miracle. We'll come back to that. But that's the first turn in this text, a miracle, an indisputable, irrefutable miracle of Jesus Christ restoring the sight of a man and giving him the ability to speak. Now, the second thing we'll see then is the response of the people and the Pharisees to what just went down. We will start with the people. It says in verse 23, and the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Amazed. They were flabbergasted. They were awestruck. They were dumbfounded. They were blown away that this guy who they haven't heard him speak before, now he's speaking, he was, never could see, now can see. Oh, he can do that now. They are blown away, and they make this question, which perhaps could be translated even as a declaration, can this be the son of David? What does that mean? Can this be the promised Messiah? Is this the promised coming king? So their response is one of amazement and declaration, at least query, question, is this the promised son of David? Now, Second of all, we're going to see the response of the Pharisees. And it's important to note here that what we read in this sacred text is not specifically the response of the Pharisees to the miracle, but the response of the Pharisees to what the people say about Jesus because of the miracle. Does that make sense? L let me show you that. And all the people were amazed and said, they're speaking, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees, it does not say saw it, was it say? So they're responding to the response of the people to the miracle of Jesus. And their response is, hey, is this the son of David? Do you see that? And basically the Pharisees say, no, 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 no. Decidedly not. He is not the son of David. He's the son of Satan. That's what they say. Let's, let's read on and see what these highly educated, authoritative teachers of the law say. They said it is only by Beazabal, which is a derogatory name for Satan. It's, it's Lord of the Flies, literally. It is by the Lord of the Flies, Beazabal, the prince of demons, this, that this man cast out demons. They say he does it by the power of Satan. You see that? Now, there's a little bit of a contrast going on. Going on. Last week, Arpitz preached a powerful message. If you missed it, you need to listen to it. He was in the first part of chapter 12, and he noted how, according to verse 18, we were told that Jesus Christ would do everything by the power of the Spirit as he walked on earth in the flesh, all right? They're saying, however, he doesn't do it by the power of the Spirit. What do they say? He does it by the power of Satan. That's what they're saying. Now, I agree. I agree with the guy, again, that I heard preach through this. I remember him saying something like this, that he didn't even know if the Pharisees actually believed the charge they're making. Like, did they even really believe he did it by the power of Satan? I, I don't know. I, sometimes I doubt that they really do. They're, they're trying to do something bigger than that, and we'll get to that. But they've already decided, I showed you verse 14, and we've seen this all through Matthew so far, have the Pharisees already decided in, 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 in the main, they don't want Jesus, right? They don't want to turn to Jesus. Would you agree on that? 
they don't want to turn to Jesus, and they don't want others to turn to Jesus as well. They don't want others to come to Jesus as well. Not only do they want to reject him, they want to actively work for others to reject him. And it's not that they didn't think Jesus had power. They couldn't deny it. Do you notice, they, here's what they could have said. They could have said when, they, when, when the blind man could see and the mute man could speak, they could have said this. They could have said, oh, it's, just a, it's just fake. It's an illusion, right? People do that today, don't they? It's just put on. They don't even contest it because it's so irrefutable. But, and this is just the way it is, when people are committed to rejecting Christ, no evidence will ever convince them, however irrefutable, because they have pre-decided they are not going to come to Jesus. Don't, it, it, just like people do today, it's like this. I've already made up my mind, don't bother me with facts. <laughs> I've already made up my mind, don't bother me with truth. And we can only surmise why it is they decided they would not turn to Jesus. It could be this. It could be that they wanted a, a, a Jewish king who would free them from Roman tyranny and occupation and oppression and all that. And Jesus clearly didn't come to free them from that, right? In fact, he'll say stuff like, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. A lot of people today, they want Jesus to do what they want him to do. They don't take Jesus for his own mission statement. Could be that. I'm sure that's a big deal of it, part of it. Another thing is, do you remember, we've seen this in the last few weeks, Jesus perpetually, chronically, intentionally violated their twisted applications of Sabbath law. Remember that? They didn't like that. You're crossing up on us. We call the shots here, and you're acting like you're bigger than us. Yes. It may be they didn't like the fact that he said he was bigger and better and greater than their beloved temple and temple system that they profited from. It, it, it may be that they didn't like the fact that he was challenging their power. It may be that they didn't like the fact that he told the paralyzed guy in the couple chapters earlier, your sins are forgiven, and they didn't see that as something they needed, needed done for themselves. We can only surmise probably a combination of things, but I repeat this again, and we're going somewhere with this. What is clear is they were not only settled in the rejection against Jesus, right, committed to the rejection, they were also settled in their desire to try to get others as well not to turn to Jesus, okay? So that's the second big point. We're just trying to set this up because the bigger part is Jesus' response. First of all, you have a miracle. It's irrefutable. A blind man can see. A mute man can speak. He's freed from a demon. The people, they go, wow, this must be the Messiah. Is he? The Pharisees say, oh no, he doesn't do that by God. He does that by Satan. He's of the devil. Okay, y'all with me? That then brings us to the response of Jesus. Verse 25, Jesus, knowing their thoughts. Jesus is better than a couple that's been married 30 years, and by virtue of being together so long, he can say what she's thinking just about before she's going to say it. Now, we get that wrong a lot of times, guys, too. We don't actually have that attribute. But Jesus has that attribute perfectly. He is omniscient. He omni-knows. He knows everything. He, he, he's reading your mail right now. My mail. He knows everything. And Jesus, who knows everything, knows their hearts, there's six truths I think he's trying to hammer home, okay? 
The first truth is this. He is going to tell them, he's basically saying, first of all, you are illogical. You're illogical, Pharisees. Let me read verse 25. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Specifically, to the point, if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? In other words, you saying that I cast a demon out of this man was through the power of the king of demons would be self-defeating for him. That would be like scoring a goal on yourself, only not accidentally through a deflection, but intentionally through a direct kick. Does that make sense? Satan, rest assured, be assured of this, he does not want to lose. Satan wants to win, right? And winning for him is keeping people in bondage to him like that demon-possessed man was. He lost, right? Because the stronger man came in, because Jesus showed that he is the Lord of glory and he kicked the demon out of that guy. Listen, it is totally illogical. Surely they get the point, but they don't mind being illogical. Why? Because they are committed to the rejection of Jesus. They've already made their verdict and they're committed to getting others to reject Jesus as well. So first of all, they're illogical, he's saying, you're illogical. Second of all, he is saying you are inconsistent or you're hypocrites. You're inconsistent. You're not even applying truth, what you believe to be the case, uh, uniformly. He says in verse 27, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Hmm. Therefore, they will be your judges. What's going on there? There was a subset of Pharisees sometimes translate sons of Pharisees, a sect of Pharisees, who would attempt to cast demons out of people. And by the way, you have, um, you have this in every religion, people trying to cast out demons. Of course, outside of Christianity, it's just demon replacement, right? Jesus even tells a story about that. But do you remember in Acts chapter 9, the sons of Siva the priest, they're casting out demons? And by the way, they get their butts whooped. If you read that story, it's crazy, Acts chapter 9. But the point is, they acknowledged the Pharisees that they had people within their tribe who practiced exorcism. And I think Jesus is saying this, I've never once heard you say, hey, those cats do it by Satan. So why are you saying I'm doing that? You are being inconsistent. Does that make sense? You are being hypocrites. But they don't mind being inconsistent, again, because they are settled in their commitment to reject Jesus and to get others to reject Jesus as well. Well, there's a third truth. Not only are you illogically sane, not only are you inconsistent, but third of all, you are knowingly rejecting me. You're knowingly rejecting me. Verse 28, he says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and I just showed you it is, you're being illogical, you're being inconsistent. If by the Spirit of God... I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God, something they talked about all the time, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And not only that, and you know it, the king of this kingdom has arrived in me. You're knowingly rejecting me. He, he only builds that indictment in verse 29 by giving this colorful illustration. He says, or how can someone enter a strong man's house? 
The strong man in this illustration is Satan. His house is his kingdom. And he goes on to say, how can someone enter Satan's kingdom, strong man's house, and plunder his goods? What are his goods? People under his influence. He's asking the question, how can someone enter Satan's kingdom and rescue people under his uh, dominion unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying, listen, for me to loot his kingdom like I just did with that demon-possessed man, rescued him, snatched him from his jaws, you saw it before your own eyes, you know it's the truth, you are knowingly, you are knowingly rejecting me. I am the stronger man. I am the living God. I am the Lord of glory. I am God incarnate. You know it. But see, they don't care. They don't mind continuing to reject Jesus under a growing body of evidence that Jesus Christ is king, that he is Lord of lords. They don't mind doing it because they've already pre-committed to their settled rejection of Jesus and trying to get other people to say no to Jesus too. Well, that brings us to the fourth thing he tells them. Not only are you illogical, not only are you inconsistent, not only are you knowingly rejecting me, but fourth of all, this is great irony here, great paradox, not paradox, irony. He says in verse 30, basically, you are the ones working for Satan. You're the ones working for Satan. You're saying I am? You are the ones. Look at verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, they would have said themselves, the Pharisees, that Satan wants to scatter people away from God instead of gathering them to God. And it's like Jesus is saying, then that's exactly what you're doing. You're scattering people away from God. You're not gathering people to God to me. You're not doing that. How ironic. You say I'm working for Satan. Baby, you are the one working for Satan. You're the one in cahoots with Satan. You're the ones working for him. You are Satan's sidekicks. And I think this comes out even stronger, okay, in verse 34. Let me ask you this question first. Who throughout the Bible is called a snake? Satan, that's exactly right. Genesis, Revelation, a few places in between. Look at what he says in verse 34. You brood of, you're part of the family of the devil. You see that? You're the ones working for Satan. You brood of vipers. In fact, he will say very strongly in John 8, to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. They are working for Satan. He's making that point. And by the way, I don't have time because I want to stay on point with the big idea of this message. This verse, if you're not for me, you're against me, should warn us that there is no middle ground with Jesus. You're not just kind of waiting to make a decision. Until you wait... Until you make that decision to turn to Christ, you're actually against him. In other words, there's, there's no spiritual Switzerland's. There's no position of neutrality with Jesus. There's not. Now, let me ask you this. Would you ever play Russian roulette? Anybody know what Russian roulette is? Okay, well, Julia, let's have a conversation, all right? You can, from the deer hunter. They did it in deer hunter, but the movie, okay? Um, you take a revolver and you put five rounds in, there's one empty chamber, you spin it, and you put it against your head, and, 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 and people gamble with that, crazy, and uh, you're, you're gambling that you will get the one empty chamber. You say, that is idiotic. Why are you doing that with your soul? You're playing Russian roulette with your soul. 
Until you cross the line of faith, you are, I hate to, I have to tell you, you're an enemy of God. And you're facing the judgment of God. And it will be a righteous judgment. Every one of your words will be brought to the stand. We'll see that. But I'm just saying, our sins are great, but his mercy is more. So what are you waiting for? Here's it is. Are you willing to submit to his lordship? His loving lordship. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's the invitation he gives. But fourth of all, you're the ones working for saints. So what have we seen? He's telling them, you're illogical, you're inconsistent, you're the ones, uh, you're knowingly rejecting me, and fourth of all, you're the ones working for Satan. Now, fifth of all, and this gets to the question of the unforgivable sin, he tells them in verses 31 and 32, you are in great danger. You are in grave danger. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. They are in grave danger of committing what he calls, in verse 31, Blasphemy against the Spirit, it says, will not be forgiven. Verse 32, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. They are in grave danger of committing a sin. I'm just being redundant here, so we get it. Of committing a sin that will never, ever be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, this is what the Holy Spirit does. This, he's a person in the Godhead, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal, co-substantial, co-eternal, three persons, one God. His ministry is to reveal truth to people about Jesus so that they'll come to Christ, and then he does the same thing in believers so that they'll be conformed to Christ, okay? That's what he does. And the Pharisees had had tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of, of exposure to the spirit of truth. But they were not only rejecting that truth in a settled way, right? They were also determined to keep others from receiving the truth. They were trying to aid and abet their rejection. And what did they say in our text? How does this text begin? He does this how? Because he's God? How do they say he does it? He does those miracles by the power of Satan. So that brings us to this. What do you think the unforgivable sin is? And we can debate this, and, and maybe it's the fourth one that I mentioned in the interview, but I, I think this is a little closer. I think it's this. The unforgivable sin is committed by people who are consciously, consciously, I always have a hard time with that word, consciously and continually trying to turn others away from Jesus, trying to get people to reject Jesus, trying to prevent people to come, from Je to come to Jesus. I say consciously, they know they're doing it. This isn't just some dude that you're debating at work or whatever, you know, some so-called atheist or agnostic or whatever. No, this is somebody who's consciously doing it. They've had tons of light. And they're continually doing it. They just keep doing it. They're trying to keep others from coming to Christ. And have we not seen them do this all through the Gospels, right? They, they, they reject Jesus, right? And then when people ask questions, they, they, they try and, and put up a shield, right? They try and turn it back on him. They don't want people to come to Jesus. There are hearts that are bad. Public service announcement, that's all of our hearts. Okay, we all have bad hearts in ourselves. 
That's why we need a heart transplant, right? That's why God sent his son to die for our sins. We, we all have bad hearts by birth. But Jesus is telling these guys, you're about to have baked hearts. Hearts that have been baked in the kiln of God's pre-judgment judgment. That is because of their consciously they know they're doing it. And continually they keep doing it. They're seeking to turn people away from Jesus. And at some point, such a person crosses the line upon which there is no return. I don't know who that would be. I, I thought through that when I was preparing for the message. I think of a guy named Rudolf Boltman. Um, he was a guy, a, a, a Greek New Testament scholar, who supposedly uh, could have quoted by memory the New Testament in Greek. And yet he, he, he came to not believe that Jesus is divine, uh, the wrath absorbing sacrifice and all that, and he turned many people away under the auspices of being a Greek scholar. I think of Marcus Borg in the Jesus Project. Think about all the light this, this guy's had, right? A scholar. And then he and a, a group of scholars went through the New Testament and said, 10% uh, chance Jesus actually said that, 30% these verses, 40% these. He's got this color-coded Bible. I would say he's probably a guy who's crossed the line upon which there is no return. Not just a bad heart, but a baked heart. And honestly, I think there are teachers and leaders in the progressive Christian movement who likewise, who deny some of the very basic, clear, historic teaching of scriptures, and they, they would be such people in danger of committing the unforgivable sin, consciously and continually turning to, seek pe to turn people away from Jesus Christ. It's a grave warning. It's a terrifying warning to somebody. And, 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 and such a person wouldn't even care. That's because God just released them totally. They're baked in the kiln of God's prejudgment judgment. Oh, there's greater judgment coming. But before we move on to the final point, I also want to say this. There is great mercy layered in, feathered in, this grave warning of judgment. Well, for one, maybe not all the Pharisees had crossed the line over which there's no return, right? Maybe someone had not. So maybe he's appealing to them, come on, man, wake up and respond to what you know is true. So it could be that. But even beyond that, furthermore, these two verses of grave warning are lavished with words of great mercy. What does he say? Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Not, not, you look at the rest of the scripture, they need to be confessed, right? You need to come to Christ for it. But Jesus will forgive every sin and blasphemy. In fact, verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. You can even blaspheme Jesus Christ and still be forgiven. You can blaspheme Jesus Christ with your lips. Hear it all the time on my baseball team. Jesus Christ and they're not worshiping him, they struck out. Or, and by the way, I love what you gave me. You say, when you hear that at work, is Lord. I, I did that the other day in the dugout, is Lord. If I did it all the time, I'd be saying is Lord all game. But such blasphemers can be forgiven. I was such a blasphemer. Not only of your lips, though, but even more significantly, your lives. People who have blasphemed Jesus, I don't know, with pride arrogance, sexual sin and all of its variants. And by the way, it's all a stench to God. Gossip, 
cheating, racism, narcissism, and all the rest. All of that, he says, can be forgiven. This is incredible good news, is it not? And that's because the stronger man will be stretched out on a cross where he will bear the judgment of God, break the back of sin, and sever the dominion of Satan over us, a.k.a. Colossians 2. Any sin can be forgiven. So again, why don't you put down your pistol of rejection and stop playing, playing roulette with your soul and repent and come to Jesus? Put your faith in him. Now the final thing he will say is your words matter. You are illogically saying to the Pharisees, you're inconsistent, you're knowingly rejecting me, all right? You're the ones working for Satan. You're in grave danger, and finally, your words matter. Now, you gotta remember who all is there. I think with those first few, he's more directly addressing the Pharisees, but remember, they were all there, right? The people were still there. And he's trying to teach them something, maybe even speak here directly to them, which is perhaps why some Bibles make a break between um, verse 32 and verse 33. Keep in mind that they're probably, they're all there. He's, he's, speak, he's speaking to people at large and the Pharisees present. And here's what I think he's saying to the Pharisees. Let me read these verses. There's so much here, I'm gonna make this concise. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Here's what I think he's saying to the Pharisees. I think he's saying, I think he's making a final appeal to them because things are really going to go downhill from here with the Pharisees. You'll see this in coming weeks. I think it's a final appeal like, come on! You've seen me. I've borne good fruit. I freed this demon-possessed man. If the sons of the Seba had done that, you'd be going like this. I freed that man. I have borne good fruit back because I am a good tree, the one who will hang on a tree. Are you willing to reconsider your position? Now, just in the small chance, there's somebody here who has been committed in their unbelief or committed in the neutrality or somebody who maybe will listen later. Are you willing to reconsider your position? Are you? Jesus is very clear to them. If, if they don't, verse 36, 35, I'm sorry, verse 36, in fact, there is a coming day of judgment. There's a coming day of judgment. And by the way, he's saying, verse 37, you will testify against yourself. Your words, your very own words are going to be what's called the witness stand. Can you imagine that? The, the Pharisees talking in the corner, I don't, we don't know how he does it. Let's just say Satan because then we can get the people to turn from him. All those words will be called to account. It is a, a gracious appeal to them saying, would you reconsider your position? Now, I think it also, he's making here an appeal to the people. I think the appeal is this. Are you willing to trust in me? And more than that, if you really are, you're gonna be willing to speak of me. Let me show you that. 
Will you speak of me? Now, what's interesting in this, in this whole narrative, there are there's 17 words having to do with speaking, saying, verbal stuff. Most of them in this last paragraph, but peppered all through this text. He's, trying to, he's talking a lot about our speech. And most people are well aware of a phrase in verse 34. Let, let me set you up for this. He's telling us in verse 34 that everybody has a heart gauge that's on the dashboard of your face. It's called your mouth. That the state of your heart is revealed by the sounds of your mouth. What you do say and also what you don't say, for good or bad. You can see a person's heart, he's saying, by what comes out of their mouth. Now, what expression are we talking about? You say it out loud, would you? You guys see it? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The state of the heart is revealed by the sounds of your mouth. Verse 37 again. For by your words you would be justified. Woo! Well, this is, not, this is not saying you're saved by your words, okay? Because we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're saved by faith alone. That's what the Bible teaches. However, the Bible also teaches that while we're saved by faith alone, true saving faith is never alone. In salvation, it comes with a new heart. You get a heart transplant. And that new heart ought to produce new mouth, new speech, right? And here, I don't think he's specifically so much saying, you know, talking about cuss words or something to say about healthy speech. But I don't think that's the idea. I think it's more... It should be a new mouth that now speaks the words of Christ. Because in verse 36, he says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Now, if you have an NIV, you have a New American Standard, you have a New Living Translation, New King James, that word is translated all kinds of ways because commentators or translators wrestle with, how do I translate the word here translated in the ESV as careless? Some versions say idle. Some versions say empty. I, I wrestled with this. I think that's the idea. I think the idea that what Jesus is saying is, and, it, and let me just put this as a challenge to us, do any of your words as a confessing Christian, do any of your words carry the truth of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, yes, the judgment of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. Do any of your words carry the truth of Jesus to those around you? Or, 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 are they empty? That's the word. No different than the words of the world. You talk, baby, just like everyone else and perhaps show that you, in fact, still need a new heart. Now think about it. The Pharisees used their words to turn people away from Christ, right? He does that by the power of Satan. What about that man who was delivered from the power of Satan? We use some sanctified imagination to say he uses words 
to point people to Jesus, to glorify him. I once was mute, but now I sing. And I, and I just traced through the miracles we covered so far in this series. And what I discovered, I, I knew this, it was just confirmed, that when people have an experience of grace, an experience of awe with God, they then speak about it. For instance, the uh, disciples are on the Sea of Galilee, there's a storm. What do they do after that? The text says they marveled. I'm sure that was a motive, and I'm sure that was verbal as well. They marveled. The paralyzed man is healed, and he walks away glorifying God. Jairus' daughter, you remember that? She's, she's raised up from the dead, and it says the report spread like wildfire. Even the two blind men who had their sight restored, Jesus says, don't say anything, and they can't help but speak. And I don't think in any of those cases people said, you know what? I think I just should probably, maybe, under compunction, under obligation, under duty, talk about Jesus. No. Why did they speak? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. They were awestruck by the experience of God's grace. And so their mouth spoke. So listen, and I close here. If you're not speaking the truth of God, the truth of Christ, the beauty of Christ, ever to your spouse, ever to your family, ever to your friends, ever to your neighbors, ever to your classmates, teammates, workmates, just go on and on. And you want that to change. And if you are a true believer, you will want that to change because you have a new heart. The way to do it is not to say, just suck it up, Hanafee, and start talking about Jesus. That's not, that won't get you that far. The way to do it is to have a heart full of Jesus. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? In other words, not guilt, but grace. You got to get your heart full of Jesus. Word worship, fellowship, and we all have different things that just give us a sense of the Lord's love, right? We all have that. And then we have those common things right there that I mentioned. Why, why, is, why is that dynamic true? Because of what Jesus said here. Hold on to this verse this week. Out of the abundance of the, the mouth speaks. Out of the ticker we talk, right? That's what he's teaching. See, a heart Full of Jesus is going to be a mouthful of Jesus. And we will see the stronger man set people free, just like he has done with us and is still doing with us. The showdown between Satan's sidekicks and the stronger man. 